Every so often, musical history throws up an individual who just doesn't seem to want to play the same game as everyone else. They're outsiders, and usually either innovators or just plain eccentrics, and in rare cases a bit of both. Chuck in an overwhelming belief in the power of the self, a ton of quasi-religious mysticism, or an obsessive interest in all manner of exotic theory and practice, and you start to get a truly fascinating individual who sounds very like the Russian composer Alexander Skriabin. By the end of his life, Skriabin's music was getting very weird indeed. How many other composers have you come across who try to compose with colours as if they were notes and harmonies? And no other, otherwise sane composer as far as I know, has ever set out to hang bells from the clouds. But perhaps the most fascinating thing about Scriabin is the route he takes to get to all this strangeness. It's an evolution, and in so many ways an entirely logical process, even if the musical results can sometimes appear to be anything but. In this programme, I'm going to set out to trace that path, to follow the way Scriabin's music and his ideas about music grew and developed and I hope to cast some light on the very remote and difficult landscape of his later compositions. Scriabin's earliest published works date from his teens, when, as a highly talented pianist in 1880s Moscow, he naturally wrote for his own instrument. From the start, his music has a voice that is all his own. It's modelled recognisably on another great composer for the piano, Chopin, but the accent is heavily Slav. Here, for instance, is his Opus 13 set of six preludes for the piano.
like Chopin, Scriabin makes the piano sing. Those are the six preludes, opus 13, written in 1895 when Scriabin was in his early 20s. They were played there by Piers Lake. Most of Scriabin's music is written for the piano, and most of that in the form of short pieces such as preludes and etudes and so on. He uses titles and structures that come straight from his then heroes, the great composer pianists of the early 19th century. This is a music made out of melody, and the lyricism of Scriabin's writing for the piano here certainly owes a very great deal to a composer like Chopin. But even at this early stage, there's a darker hue to the ideas, a colour to the harmony in particular that is recognisably late romantic and very distinctively Russian. As I said, almost all of Scriabin's music is written for the piano in one way or another. He wrote nothing for string quartet, virtually no chamber music, no songs and no opera. The only other instrument he wrote for was the orchestra, and that only about half a dozen times, and even then often using the piano as a solo instrument. So Scriabin wasn't in the least bit interested in becoming what one might call a truly versatile composer, fluent in all kinds of genres. Instead, his focus throughout his career is on the real meat of musical design, on melody, harmony, rhythm, pacing and structure, and how each of these basic musical atoms can slot together and what the real meaning of a musical experience actually is. As we'll see later on, this takes him in some quite unexpected directions. But let's listen first to one of the most characteristic of his early pieces, the Piano Concerto, written in 1896. This is the second movement, the slow movement. It's an exquisitely crafted variation structure that, as you might expect, puts the lyrical power of the piano at the centre of our focus. We hear the theme for this movement right at the start, played on muted strings, and it's the only section when the piano soloist is silent. Once the variations begin, and there are four of them, the piano soloist drapes all kinds of glittering detail over the rest of the orchestra. A second variation is much livelier, but it's over in a flash, a kind of miniaturised scherzo. The third takes us into the key of D-sharp minor and is bleakly melancholic, featuring the lowest possible register of the piano. The fourth returns to the delicate and highly decorated textures of the first, before becoming even more elaborated and trilling off into a short cadenza for the piano alone and a decorated reprise of the opening theme.
the second movement of Scriabin's only piano concerto, or at least the only work he called a concerto. The soloist was Vladimir Ashkenazi, and he was accompanied by the London Philharmonic Orchestra under the conductor Lorin Marzell. Apart from the piano music, the only other format to be found consistently in Scriabin's work is the symphony. He wrote five of them. Three of them he actually called symphonies, while the other two are symphonies in all but name, the Poem of Ecstasy and Prometheus, subtitled The Poem of Fire. His first symphony was written some four years after the piano concerto. It's still very much an early work, but there are already strong hints here of a quite different kind of ambition to that of the shorter piano pieces, and it presages some of the shifts of outlook that would become very much more marked in his later work. With this symphony, Scrabi makes a conscious attempt to broaden the scope of his music. It's a really very substantial piece in six movements, and the last of those movements adds in a chorus and vocal soloists who sing a text by Scrabin himself in praise of the power of art. To be honest, I think this first symphony is a bit of a mess. The vocal and choral writing in particular feels contrived and unnatural, and perhaps it's not surprising that Scriabin never again made any attempt at setting words. He would go on to find meaning beyond the unnatural and artificial limitation of language. But to me, the first movement of this symphony more than suggests the direction in which his music was to go. For a start, this movement stays in a major key throughout its duration. This is important. One of the features of Scriabin's musical development was his gradual abandonment of the minor as a means of expression. Then there are the harmonies, that are coloured with all kinds of delicate shivers and tremors in the strings, and all of this directed at creating a very specific emotional atmosphere, a kind of radiant and serene calm.
the first movement of Scriabin's first symphony. It was played there by Riccardo Muti and the Philadelphia Orchestra. As I said, I think this music is very much about creating a sense of radiant serenity. And in part, at least, Scriabin does it through the very interesting way in which he handles the progress of the harmony. He begins with a relatively straightforward A major triad. He then builds on to this, adding notes that actually lie outside that A major triad. First, an F sharp. Then a B below that. And finally, an E below that, the tonic of the key we're actually in. E major. Though by now, that E major is heavily coloured by a whole series of added notes, though all of them in the key of E. But all of them arrived at in a very non-conventional manner. In fact, by adding a fifth below the bass each time. But it's that lack of what in musical jargon we would call the functional harmonic process that helps to produce this very vivid sense of calm serenity. And when the melody comes in, it adds yet a further note from the scale of E major that we haven't yet had, and starts on a G sharp. And it's a melodic line that is actually almost nothing more than the notes of the harmony that are being sustained underneath it. In other words, you could think of the harmony as just a melody in which all of the notes are heard at the same time. These techniques become more pronounced and more and more important as Scriabin's musical language develops. But one of the most crucial elements in his development was something that had nothing at all to do with his music, at least at first. In 1905, after writing that first symphony, Scriabin came across the work of Madame Blavatsky, one of the founders of the Theosophical Movement. Scriabin had always been interested in philosophical ideas. He read widely, including a great deal of Nietzsche. But theosophy, with its semi-rational and voguish mixture of the spiritual and the mystical, seemed to set something free in him creatively. Put simply, theosophy sees a fundamental truth in all religious belief, while at the same time refusing to accept a god from any of them. In a sense, Man, and not God, is the truth at the centre of being. From now on, then, Scriabin thinks of his work as much in spiritual, emotional and cosmic terms as he does in the purely musical. And he makes a completely unique connection between music, feeling, sexuality and the capacity of all these, and more, to intuit what he now calls the divine. You'll hear that in this complete performance of his Piano Sonata No. 5.
That was Scriabin's fifth piano sonata, played there by Vladimir Ashkenazi, and it's one of the works most directly influenced by his contacts with the ideas of the theosophical movement. That sonata is one of his ecstatic works. In this, and the orchestral poem of ecstasy that he wrote at around about the same time, Scriabin is aiming at a music that both depicts and is inspired by the personal and individual ecstasy of the creative act. The mood is radiantly positive, and he achieves it through a music that careers between different kinds of longing and colossal rhythmic energy. That energy is built out of the refusal of the music to settle in a stable tonality for anything longer than the briefest instance. Rhythmic complexity, elaborately spread and arpeggiated harmonies and added notes work together to drive the music forward by creating musical tensions on a quite extraordinary scale and they always demand some kind of resolution. And now, unlike in the earlier work, that resolution might never quite appear. From now on, Scriabin's harmony starts to work in very interesting ways and I think it's worth having a closer look at it. Listen to these four notes. Together, they form what we can call a dominant seventh in C major, and it can resolve quite naturally onto a chord of C major. Now, in conventional terms, this is a chord built out of thirds, G, B, D, F. What Scriabin might do is to alter one of those notes by lowering the D by a semitone, this gives a very different kind of harmony, though one that can still resolve quite naturally onto a chord of C. But you can also do something else with this new chord, and that is to think of it as being made up now not of thirds, but of two tritones. And a tritone is an interval made up of three whole tone steps. The tritone is a very special interval. It cuts the octave exactly in half, and is also tonally the most unstable interval it's possible to have. In Scriabin's later music, you can hear whole passages in nothing but tritones, and you've just heard one of them at the start of the fifth piano sonata. But once you've thought of this chord as two tritones, one on top of another, you start to notice a very interesting kind of symmetry. Not only is this an altered dominant seventh in C, because of that tritone relationship, you can also, just by thinking of those notes in a different way, by spelling them differently, you can see this chord now as a similarly altered dominant seventh in G-flat. It's a bit complicated, I know, but there are now two possible tonal resolutions implied by the same chord. Or... Now convoluted as that might be, that's actually a bit simple for Scriabin, and in his compositions he actually goes very much further than that. Instead of lowering a note of that dominant seventh by a semitone, he also sometimes raises it by a semitone, and then sometimes includes both the raised and flattened fifth in the chord simultaneously, giving us a chord that sounds like a whole tone scale.
He also extends the seventh chord by turning it into a dominant ninth. A dominant eleventh. Or even a dominant thirteenth. While still lowering or raising any one of these notes by a semitone, and sometimes by more than a semitone. Let's try that with a dominant 13th chord on C. Without any of those chromatic alterations, it would sound like this. Now all we have to do is lower the G to an F sharp, and then move the other notes around a bit, changing the order in which they appear, and we end up with... Scriabin calls that his mystery chord. And you can hear that chord in some form again and again in his later music. Now I hope my explanation of how he arrives at it means that it isn't as much of a mystery to you. If you've got internet access, you can see an example of the mystery chord on the Radio 3 website at the Discovering Music homepage. The crucial next step for Scriabin, though, is to treat these strange chords not as part of a functional harmonic process, but as sounds and colours in their own right. Prometheus, the poem of fire, in effect his fifth symphony does exactly that, and then goes even further, because Scriabin, perhaps taking his cue from what is now a very highly coloured and exotic harmonic language, starts to introduce all kinds of other stimuli into the performed experience. The score of Prometheus calls for something that was intended to project colours around the audience as they listen to his music. This confusion of senses has been termed synesthesia. It's essentially a medical term for how an individual can misinterpret sensory experience, seeing sound and hearing images and so on. I think the importance of the synesthetic experience has been slightly over-egged in Scriabin's case, because I've got no doubt he had a much more serious imaginative purpose in mind with these projections of colour. What he was after was a kind of multi-sensory overload, to parallel the tonal overload in his harmony, and the extraordinary overload of detail in his instrumental writing. After all, this is almost as much a piano concerto as a symphony, and there's even a wordless chorus that appears towards the final apocalyptic climax of the whole work. In other words, in Prometheus, the poem of fire, Scriabin was aiming at a unification of an individual's entire sensory apparatus in the face of a deliberately overwhelming creative statement. Now there's so much more I could say about this extraordinary piece, but it's about time we heard it played here by the Philadelphia Orchestra conducted by Ricardo Muti. The solo pianist is Dmitry Alexeyev.
Prometheus, The Poem of Fire, by Alexander Skriavin. The solo piano is played by Dmitry Alexeyev, and the Philadelphia Orchestra and the Choral Arts Society of Philadelphia, conducted by Ricardo Muti. Now, I count that as one of the most brilliantly original works of art from the entire 20th century. And it's a piece we, as listeners, are still discovering. There's so much for us to come to terms with here. Skriavin hasn't helped. Unfortunately, his mysticism tends to put people off than to draw them in. But you've got to see his ideas about music and about art for what they are, essentially just a means to a musical end. The advanced language of Prometheus wasn't as far as Scriabin in the end went. In fact, he wanted to go much further. He died really quite young in 1915. He was just 53 and with all kinds of projects unfinished. The most important of these was what he called the mystery. This was to take this unification of the senses even further than it went in Prometheus. His musical language would now even combine all twelve notes of the chromatic scale in a single harmony. The mystery would be performed in a specially constructed arena in the Himalayas, would combine sound, meditation and dance, and bells would be hung from the clouds above a reflected pool that would create a world circle with the sky and the mountains. Rather more fancifully, Scrabin imagined that the impact of all this would be to destroy the world. The conductor Kusevitsky was a bit more down to earth and suggested that when the premiere of Mystery was over, we'd just go out and have a good dinner. Scrabin died before any of this could be realised. In any case, by 1915, Europe was already doing a very good job at destroying itself entirely without the help of Scrabin's music.
very little of the music for Scriabin's Mystery was composed, though there have been attempts at deciphering the many sketches he made. However, we do have five piano preludes he wrote in 1914, and these more than hint at the kind of musical language he was preparing for the mystery. In these little preludes, Scriabin's harmony, in its broadest sense, still just about hints at some kind of possible, eventual tonal resolution. Though that's now stretched a breaking point and probably beyond it. But in spite of that, this music is nothing other than intensely expressive and astonishingly beautiful. Rather more modest, perhaps, than in some of the projects Scriabin had in mind at this time, but no less of a musical experience for that. Thank mm-hmm. you. 